Scripture this morning is from Luke 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. So uh, I was away on a retreat all last week, so I didn't get a chance to talk with Todd much uh, about the service this morning. And I can't wander. I forgot to put a thing on. Uh, And so last night, uh, I don't know, 5 o'clock or so, he texts uh, me and says, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, uh, after your sermon tomorrow, there is communion. 
Uh, and here's what you're going to need to do. To do that, you're going to the bread will be in front of you, and you'll have to. And he gave me the instructions and said the elders are coming, and and they'll distribute. And I thought, oh, okay, fine. And he said, so you may want to shorten your sermon a little bit. So I went and this morning, woke up very early and compressed the sermon down. And I got here and I said to James and and Sharon in the office, so communion set up. Is there anything special I need to know? And they both looked at me and said, we're not doing communion today. We did communion last week. We don't have it in the slides. We're not doing communion. Now, which means there's two possibilities. <laughs> Todd either simply forgot that uh, you had done communion last week uh, and so made a mistake, or he was just messing with me. <laughs> I think we all know Todd well enough to know that he was indeed messing with me. So the passage I want to look at today is the tail end of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24. So Lord, we just pray that you would open these words of this gospel to us, that our eyes would would see it, our hearts would receive, our minds would understand the depth of the grace in this passage. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment the longest day that you've ever had. You know that day that you felt would just never end? I I don't mean one of those days where you say, I hope this day never ends. But more one of those days when you ask that question, when will this day ever end? Now, for some of you, you might have a positive memory. But as the old saying goes, time flies when you're having fun and grinds to a miserable crawl when you're not. For most of us, that day that would not end is likely a day that involves loss. Pain, confusion, anger, fear, or sorrow. It might be a death, a loss of a job, a loss of family or marriage, something like that. Well, I think for many of the disciples, that's exactly what the first day of the week after the crucifixion was like. It's like a day that would never end. Now, we pick up, the story begins very early in the morning of the first day of the week, while it was yet dark. Which actually means this this gospel account begins while it's still the Sabbath. Mary sneaks out, even before the Sabbath is over, that Sabbath lawbreaker that she is. But we pick up our story at about midday, when there's two disciples, Cleopas and another. It's possibly, scholars seem to think that it's possibly his wife Mary. They're walking along the path to this village, and they're talking about the things that have just taken place in recent days. They're likely talking about things like the triumphal entry or perhaps the arrest and and the stories they'd already begun to hear about the questionable trial and the questions that were asked of him and, and the beatings that took place and the mockery that he suffered and then his crucifixion and, and, and the story about how he was taken down from the cross and laid in the tomb. And now there's reports of a missing body. Now, we too do these things. We talk about things that happen in our lives. We sometimes talk about trivial things like sports. I can't believe they lost and they're out of the playoffs. Or, or I mean, if you could imagine uh, that day, February 1st, if you were to live in Seattle, some of you will remember exactly what I'm talking about. The day when they made that ridiculous pass and Seattle lost the Super Bowl. You can imagine the water coolers on Monday. 
it probably would have been virtually the only conversation happening in coffee shops and in offices the next day. We can get consumed by trivial things, but we can also get caught up in very important events. If you, were, if you remember witnessing the fall of the Berlin Wall or the day when the Twin Towers collapsed, for the next day, weeks, it was really the only topic of conversation. The conversations can engage us deeply, both individually and culturally, for days and weeks. Well, these two disciples were talking about nothing else except the most significant event that they had ever witnessed. And the passage there says, and you can follow along in your, in your uh, leaflet there, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and he went to them. Now, if you're just... It's that line itself is a great passage to meditate on, this idea that Jesus walks with us. He's in our presence. He, he comes alongside us. Jesus knew, drew near them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him, which is an interesting phrase referring to a fellow who had opened the eyes of the blind. He had let those who had no eyes to see to see, and yet their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It was much more than Mary not recognizing him and mistaking him for the gardener. Someone or something was keeping them in dark on purpose, at least for now. And Jesus says to them, what are you talking about? What are you so deeply engaged in? What's the conversation? And they just stared at him, stunned. What do you mean? What are we talking about? It's the only thing anyone is talking about. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here these days? Remember that Jerusalem during Passover would have exploded in population. Hundreds of thousands of people would have been in the city. And they're saying, are you the only one who doesn't know what's been happening? Which is an interesting phrase. I mean, crucifixions themselves were not unusual in the Roman Empire. They were public and they were commonplace. They were a way to warn people to keep in line. They were a form of, uh, of, of deterrent, of, of bad actions. But for some reason, this crucifixion on this Friday was not the run-of-the-mill crucifixion and execution. Perhaps it was because of the man himself, this Jesus of Nazareth, a miracle-making preacher rabbi who some thought might be the Messiah, or perhaps it was because of the sudden darkness that had turned out the sun at midday, which had gotten people talking. Or maybe it was the earthquake. Or maybe rumors now of the missing, stolen, come back to life again body. Whatever it was, the events of this Passover were the only thing the people in the city were talking about. And Jesus looks at them and says, What thing? And Clopas says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a, a man who was a prophet, who was mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and, and how the chief priests delivered him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But, but we had hoped he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. We thought he was, he was a man mighty in deed and word before God. He was one who spoke with authority. That's the echo there. Remember earlier in the Gospels, the people were astounded because Jesus spoke as one who had authority. He was mighty in word and deed. Notice, too, who they're blaming for the killing of Jesus. It's not the Romans. Sure, they might have actually carried out the execution. 
But already Clopas is saying it's our chief priests, the rulers, the shepherds who condemned him to death and crucified him. But to me, it's verse 21 that is most revealing here. The one who people hoped would be the Messiah. And the one who would do what what they thought the Messiah would do. He would be like the second Moses. He would be the one to lead the children out of Israel. Out of bondage and oppression and slavery. They would deliver them from the great Roman oppression. That's who we thought the Messiah would be. We hoped the Messiah would be like a second David. One to reign on the throne of his father Uh, 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 of David's throne as as king again. It was a very earthly, tangible understanding of Messiah. He'd be a person who would be like Moses and David and just lead and rule and, and, and reign over us. And wouldn't everything be wonderful then? They certainly had no concept of a suffering Messiah or a sacrificial king or a God incarnate who would willingly lay down his life for sinners. All that to say that from the perspective of Jesus' disciples, what had taken place from Thursday to Friday represented nothing less than a spectacular failure, either on behalf of God or on behalf of the foolish people who had once again fallen for a smooth-talking charlatan. And besides all this, Cleopas says, it's now the third day since these things happened. Jesus seemed to mention something about the third day a few times. And he says, moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They they surprised us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, and, and, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying to us, they had seen visions of angels. And one of them even said that he was alive. Now, it's important to understand that the people would have had no perception that this now slain king, prophet, priest would, would conquer death as an enemy. They were wanting him to conquer Rome and to come back to life in resurrected form. As off-putting and beyond conception, the idea of a crucified Messiah was a resurrected Christ was simply unfathomable. That's why the rest of the disciples were so slow to believe, needing to see it for themselves, because it was beyond the scope of their understanding and belief. They never could have made this stuff up. It wasn't even within their ability to conceive of a risen Christ, a crucified Messiah. Some of those who were with us, Cleopas went on, said they went to the tomb and found, found it just as the women had said, but none of them saw him. Yeah, they went to the tomb, it was empty. Well, which isn't actually true. The tomb wasn't empty. The tomb did have a cloth in it and what was amounted to a face cloth. But other than that, and it was neatly folded, but other than that, it was empty. They went to the tomb and saw that there was basically nothing in it, but no one saw Jesus or the angels, and so things just kept getting stranger for us today. You can almost see Jesus trying his best not to burst out laughing at this point. I mean, keeping a secret for most of us is hard. Keeping a really good secret is nearly impossible, but could you imagine keeping the greatest secret of all time and just keeping it to yourself? But but rather than laughing or just bursting out and telling them the truth and saying, hey guys, it's me, Jesus takes time to slowly open their eyes. He says to them, oh foolish ones, oh slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. 
Tom Wright puts it this way. He says, they, like everyone else in Israel, had been reading the Bible through the wrong end of the telescope. They had been seeing it as a long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. But it was instead the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. Through, in particular, the suffering which would be taken on by himself, by Israel's representative, the Messiah. Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And so Jesus begins with Moses and the prophets from the beginning of the book to the end of their testament. He interpreted to them all the things the scripture said concerning himself. These people were there for the actual gospel events, but they didn't understand who Jesus really was and who the Christ was or the necessity of Christ's self-sacrifice to bring about reconciliation and restore shalom until they understood it in the context of the law and the prophets. And so Jesus points out, he explains how it all points to him. All the events, how they pointed to him up to that point. He probably would have gone back to talking about Noah and Abraham and and, and Moses and David. And he draws these lines of connection. He connects the dots. He talks about how in the desert, Moses Moses lifts up that snake, that serpent. And that brings salvation. And he says, see how the man lifted up on the cross has now brought you salvation. He connects all the dots for them. As Jesus' teaching came to an end, they drew near the village to which they were going. And Jesus acted as if he was going on further. Well, it was nice to meet you, nice chatting with you. Maybe we'll run into each other again, sort of thing. But they urged him strongly, saying, no, 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 stay with us. It's almost evening. It's dangerous out there. Just stay with us. The day's now far spent. And so Jesus went in. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread He blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were open and recognized. Now, clearly, Luke wants us to think about another incident. Any ideas what Luke's trying to draw our attention to? Seriously, no ideas? (laughs) The Last Supper. He's trying to draw our attention to the Last Supper when it says in Luke's Gospel, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. Now Luke's making this reference of the Last Supper for our sake. It's not for the sake of Cleopas. He wasn't there. He didn't know about the Last Supper. He's making it for our reference. And it says their eyes were opened. But I think it's also meant to make us think of another incident from much earlier on. I think it's meant to make us think of an incident that happened not just in the years of Jesus' life, but well, well, well before that. Back to the book of Genesis. When the passage says, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, and she took of its fruit and she ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and both their eyes... We're what? We're open. And they saw. They knew they were naked. Notice, though, the difference between these two events. In the one, the thing being eaten, the thing which opens their eyes, is given to them. And they receive it. And it is a blessing. In the other, that which opens their eyes is taken. And it becomes a curse. 
This is why in the Eucharist, the bread is given to us. It should never be taken. Even if, a, even if it's a loaf of bread, it ought to be broken off and given to us to receive. We, would, should, we should never presume to take it for ourselves. We receive communion. We don't take communion. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized them. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us? While he talked to us on the road, while he opened the the scriptures to us, what was burning in their hearts? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was burning deep within their hearts as they began to see, began to realize that something they already kind of knew was coming to light in a new way. This line makes me think of the story of John Wesley. Many of you know this story. When one evening he went rather begrudgingly to a prayer meeting. I don't know if any of you have ever gone begrudgingly to a prayer meeting. John Wesley admits the last thing he wanted to do that night, he was Anglican, he probably wanted to go for a beer. Um, he, uh, he, the last thing he wanted to do was go to a prayer meeting, but he went. And you would think that it was during the reading of the Gospels, or maybe the reading of an epistle, but he says this, during a reading of Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. John Wesley's heart burns because he hears Luther's preface, not even the gospel. He says it's about a quarter of nine when I was when he was describing, the person leading was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. And I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation. And as assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, he saved me from the law of sin and death. His heart was strangely warmed. His heart burned within him because the Holy Spirit spoke to him in a fresh way. And so Cleopas and his friend, whoever it was, rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They ran back to Jerusalem. It was dark out. And they ran the seven miles back to Jerusalem. They found the eleven gathered in the upper room where they had left them earlier. And they said, it's all true. What the women said is true. What, 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 what they said when they went to the tomb and found it empty is true. The Lord has indeed risen. And they began to tell them what happened on that road, how they were walking along and someone joined them and how it was made known to him who it was when they broke the bread. I think there's another important lesson for us to glean from this passage here. That scripture and sacrament, word and bread, are joined together tightly. Again, Tom Wright observes, take scripture away and the sacrament becomes a piece of magic. Take the sacrament away and scripture becomes an intellectual or emotional exercise detached from real life. But put them together And you have the center of Christian living as Luke understood it. Now at this point, some in the room were wondering, how can it be? We saw him die. We saw him taken down. We saw him laid in the tomb. We saw the stone rolled into place. And we know that no one comes back from the dead. And as they were discussing these things, as they were in deep discussion about this stuff, as some were asking questions, suddenly Jesus appears in their midst. And he says, Shalom Alechem, peace be with you. A standard Hebrew greeting, just sort of appearing out of nowhere saying, Hi, how is everyone? And they were startled. 
and frightened as though they saw a spirit. Now, why do you suspect they were startled? Well, normal people just don't appear out of thin air. Unless you've been to like a David Copperfield show the night before. People just don't appear out of nowhere. And this, this, this would, I argue, would be even truer for dead people than for living people. Dead people most certainly don't suddenly appear out of thin air. So, of course, they were startled and frightened. They were shocked. And Jesus says to them, this is just a lovely question. Jesus says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? What, what did you not believe about the testimony of the women this morning? Why did you doubt what Peter told you? Why are you not convinced by Cleopas and his friend? What is it about me rising from the dead that you find so hard to believe? I told you at least on three separate occasions that this is exactly what would happen. Just after Peter had confessed Jesus as Lord, remember the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says to him, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He will be killed and on the third day be raised. Well, just after, and then just after healing the boy with evil spirits, with unclean spirits, Jesus says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered over into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. After the story of the rich young ruler, Jesus again says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, they will be, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise from the dead. I told you three times. Now, I can imagine some of the people in the group saying, well, that seems reasonable when you put it that way. Aside from the fact that it's totally unreasonable. Dead people stay dead. That's what happens. That's the way it works. And so Jesus goes on and says, well, see my hands and feet. It's me. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. What Jesus is getting into here is the nature of the resurrection of the body. It is, is it flesh or is it spirit or is it both or is it neither? I mean, physical bodies do not normally have the ability to walk through walls and appear suddenly in a room. But on the other hand, spirits are not physical and so you can't touch them. Now, the idea of spirits, was what we might term as ghosts, was not entirely foreign to the Hebrew mind. You might remember the story when King Saul was a bit upset about how his kingdom was crumbling around him. He, he went and conjured up the dead spirit of his former advisor and coach, Samuel. And he asked Samuel for advice. And, and scripture says Samuel was pretty upset about being woken from the dead and says, you're not supposed to do these sort of things, Saul, and sort of sent Saul on his way. But the idea of king of spirits and ghosts was not unusual. And yet here is Jesus saying, look, here I am, flesh and bone, touch me. Luke, I think, is trying to demonstrate that the resurrected body of Jesus is somehow similar to, but also completely different from the earthly, fleshly form. Paul does a slightly better job of this. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the same issue. And he says, some of you are going to ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of bodies will they come? And Paul, like Jesus, calls them foolish people. Uh, I think I'm going to take that up more often. 
just when people ask me questions, say, you're foolish. <laughs> what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So it is with the resurrection of the body. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. What is sown is sown in dishonor, but what is raised is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown in a natural body is raised in a spiritual body. And so, says Paul, there's both a natural and a spiritual body, and that's what forms the resurrected body. He goes on and says, It is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that was first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. And he says, just as we are born of the image of the man of dust, Adam, we are also born and bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. So does that clear it all up for you? I'm not saying Paul hits a home run here uh, in explaining the resurrected body, but at least I think he gets us on first base. He says, our bodies now are like a grain, a seed, which will fall to the earth and die. But when the seed grows to new life, it looks very little like the seed which fell. But it bears incredible resemblance to the plant from which the seed proceeded in the first place. Simply put, we have some aspects of what we now know as a fleshly, physical body. But we will be much more a spiritual body than we ever were. We'll be much more like Christ himself. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And you might think at that point it would have convinced them. That that would have done the trick. See, it's really me. But this next line of scripture I think is one of the more confusing ones in scripture. It says this. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? Hear that line. While they still disbelieved for joy. What does that mean? How can you still disbelieve for joy? Here's what I think. I think it's not so much that they still didn't believe or they were still unconvinced, but more they disbelieved because they were stunned and overwhelmed. They were shocked. They weren't saying, I don't believe this. They were saying, I can't believe this. This is all too much for me to take in. Think of the greatest kind of shock of good news that you could ever get. Imagine you go home uh, on Monday and you get a letter in the mail and you open it up and you find a check for $10 million from some long-lost relative you totally forgot about and the note says, this is for you, my favorite second cousin. And you may just look at that and go, wow, I can't believe this. I I, I don't believe my eyes. Well, multiply that seven times 70. And we begin to understand the line, still disbelieved for joy, and were marveling. And then Jesus says to them, have you anything here to eat? I'm not convinced that necessarily helped the situation much. I can imagine them saying, okay, seeing the risen Lord, fine. Touch him, curious, but I can wrap my mind around the idea of a physical resurrection. But Jesus saying, have you got anything to eat? I'm starving here. I haven't eaten in three days. I'm starving to death, is what Jesus is saying. And so they did the only reasonable thing. They pointed at the table and said, yeah, take a plate, help yourself. Um, And Jesus went and took a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it before them. Again, a form of proof of the physical resurrection, that the resurrection is not just a spirit or soul thing. And then he says to them this, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law and the prophets and and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Just like on the road to Emmaus, he explains the scripture, tells them how the Old Testament points to him, how it all ties together. And usually when there's repetition in scripture, especially when it comes close together like this, it's for two reasons. First, because God seems to think it's important enough to repeat himself. And secondly, because he's pretty convinced we're dull enough to miss it the first time. And so Jesus says it a second time. Teaching, knowing, and understanding the Old Testament is essential if you want to know and understand Jesus and the Gospels. The law basically refers to the story of the people of God, the people, the events, the promises, and the covenants. The prophets, major and minor, mostly talk about proclaiming Israel's repeated history of idolatry and injustice, breaking the law and the covenant, what God resolves to do about it in the immediate, removing them from his favor and allowing Israel to go into exile in Judah, and in the future, a Messiah, one like Moses and David and Elijah, who would come and redeem Israel through the suffering of himself, so that all of Israel and all of creation would be saved. And the Psalms and the other writings through poetry speak about the human condition, man's simultaneous need for God and his rejection of him. And Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. We already talked about that. And then Jesus sort of transitions into a so that statement. He says all this has happened and then he gives his equivalent of the Great Commission and says this has all happened. The Christ has suffered so that now repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in, the na- in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The question here it seems to me is this. Do we repent so that our sins can be forgiven? Or are we only now able to repent because our sins have been forgiven? It's a subtle but important difference in our theology and our understanding of God. Is forgiveness based on our actions? That is, I have to say sorry first so that my sins can be forgiven? Or is is forgiveness based on what was already accomplished upon the cross and so forgiveness from God precedes my repentance? Is God helpless to forgive unless I first repent? Or have we been unable to truly repent until God has set us free through his suffering? I would suggest it's the latter, though I think in our practical and commonly lived out theology, we probably believe it's the former. Luke's account of the prodigal son, the father's chosen to forgive the son before the son says a single word. And it's only after that forgiveness has been pronounced and the sacrifice made that the son is in any position to truly appreciate the depth and breadth of his sin, and truly repent. From the cross, Jesus says, Forgive them, Father, for they know absolutely nothing. It is this pronouncement that our sins are forgiven that then allow, that, then, that we are able to, that, that forgiveness is then to be taken into the world. And so Jesus says to them, Now you are my witnesses of these things. Now I send you out to proclaim this to the world. But before you go, you must first wait. You must stay still in the city. Wait for the Holy Spirit, which is Christ's gift of his ongoing presence in us, so that we can be sent as his ongoing and continuing presence and incarnation 
into the world. Waiting, specifically waiting for the Holy Spirit, is not something most of us are very good at. But that's a different sermon. Jesus says, go now and proclaim repentance and forgiveness. But don't do it on your own. Wait until I have empowered you with my gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's how this day, the day of the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection ends. What began with sorrow, grief, and fear ends with joy, hope, and love. What began with what seemed like a crushing end turned out to be just the beginning of a new thing. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah.